We are concluding our Built for Discipleship series today. 13 sermons, and I think we added a bonus sermon with missions when Pastor Ian was here. But we've dedicated 13 weeks. We started up in September, and we had a few breaks for for Christmas and Advent things, and and then for um, my own personal recovery. And so today's our final sermon. And discipleship is about culminating true worship meaning offering up to God what's pleasing to him. True worship. So that is the topic today. I looked at uh, Baker Encyclopedia and described worship as expression of reverence and adoration of God. That does pretty good. But today, we're going to look at Romans chapter 12, just two verses. Two powerful verses here to understand what the Lord is looking for. What is true worship? So Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Those are our two verses today. So if, you have, if you're able to, please rise as we read Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. I'll be reading out the NASB version. God's word says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world or age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray we will treasure it. pray that we will see you more clearly through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. If I could draw your attention to the end of verse 1. Paul writes, which is your spiritual service of worship. And this is the issue today. What is worship? And, and as I look, studied this word spiritual, logikos, it basically means carefully thought out. Carefully thought out. So you've internalized this, and from your soul, this is what you believe. No longer external, no longer just dead ritual, but this is from the heart. So another way to tran- uh, uh, translate spiritual service of worship is true worship, which is the title of our sermon today. And this is what we're going to answer today. I always like to give questions and one central question so we could follow along. What is true worship? We want to know this. As Christians, this matters. This is exactly what we're going to be doing in eternity as we are in front of our God someday. So the three points to answer what is true worship, I'm going to say true worship requires, number one, the mercies of God. This is right out of the text. Number two, true worship requires the acceptance of God. And number three, true worship requires the mind of God, the mind of God. And so I tell you this, just so we could kind of follow along a little bit easier, uh, I'll definitely be going over this um, throughout the sermon. So let's start off with our first point. What is true worship? What is true worship? True worship requires the mercies of God. I just said it. Let's turn our attention to verse one at the top. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. 
Therefore is therefore a big reason. Romans 12 begins the, perhaps the application side or our appropriate response side to what was taught by Paul in the first 11 chapters. So for the first 11 chapters, it talks about the mercies of God. The mercies of God. So what is the mercies of God? Well, Paul, Paul writes here, by the mercies of God, or perhaps a better translation, because the mercies of God. Because the mercies of God. And a metaphor that I came up with, it popped into my mind as I was studying, how can I best explain this to the church? I thought about a, a treasure chest. The treasure chest of the mercies of God. And where God mercifully gives us this chest containing all kinds of spiritual treasures. And I'm going to open up this chest right now and cover some of the treasures, the high point of the treasures that are talked about in the first 11 chapters of Romans. This is critical that we understand this. Number one, as I open up this treasure chest of the mercies of God, I pull out a flawless diamond which represents our justification. Clear and perfect. We were once guilty as sinners. Now God considers us innocent. And each facet of this diamond, this priceless diamond, talks about how we were once enemies with God. Where we once, as enemies, will look forward to the wrath of God. But now, since we've been justified, we have peace with God. And as I turn and turn and look at another facet of this gem... We've been justified. In, in this sense, God treats us just if I have never sinned. Just if I have lived Jesus' perfect life. In that sense, this whole diamond of justification declares that we're forgiven. We're forgiven. We have peace with God now. We have that, Christians. The second treasure that I'll take out of this chest is a precious pearl of adoption. We were once spiritual orphans, but now we've been adopted into God's family as sons and daughters of God. Can you imagine that? God is our father. And since he's a loving father, he providentially does everything in our lives from COVID to to easier things, to difficult things, to blessings, all that for our good. A loving father shapes and molds us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Providence works for our good, if you can imagine that. What a way to live when we understand that. And since we are adopted into the family God, God gives us his spirit. The Holy Spirit lives within you and me, Christians, to seal our sonship or daughtership with God. We are children of God. Can you imagine that? The next treasure I take is a -a one-of-a-kind ruby. This ruby represents our union with Christ through his precious red blood. And since we are one with Christ, nothing can separate us from his love. Not even death, the Bible says. We're united. We're one with Christ forever. What a treasure. And since we're one with Christ, Christ right now in heaven... At the right hand of the Father is praying for us, Romans talks about. Can you imagine that? Do you have a friend that constantly prays for you nonstop? I know we have faithful people praying for us and our family and our church, but not 
24-7. Jesus Christ, in his infinite ability and mind, is able to pray for every single one of his people nonstop. Amazing. And then I take you out of this treasure chest a priceless, one-of-a-kind work of art portrait. And what does this portrait represent? It represents the future glorification of what you and I are going to look like. Right now, we resemble almost nothing what we're going to look like. This portrait is going to be realized in eternity in heaven. Can you imagine this church? We're going to be like Christ. We're not going to be a God like Christ, but we're going to be like Christ. We're going to be living in a sinless existence in heaven. And this is what this portrait represents. Isn't that amazing? And the final treasure that is contained in this chest by the mercies of God is a golden crown. A golden crown, which is our eternal life with Christ. Now, the treasure chest of the mercies of God is only for Christians, though. It's closed for non-believers. This is not available for people who do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's locked. You can hear about it. You can understand it. You can see people who possess these things. But if you're not in Christ, it's locked. It's not yours. It's not given to you. But this is the good news. There is a key to unlock this chest. But there's only one key. And that key is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Romans says this, faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ. The words of the gospel. Brothers and sisters who are in Christ, I want you to hear this. For one thing, I want us to continually to appreciate the message of the gospel. Number two, for you Christian, is I want you to be able to clearly explain the gospel to your non-believing friends and family. Perhaps you'll hang out with some today at a party or something. And for those who know you're not in Christ or not sure, I want you to hear this message very clearly so that you could unlock that treasure chest and receive the free gifts that God gives us through Christ. I was at a breakfast yesterday, and I thought this man ended this, this, this banquet-type breakfast in an amazing way. His mission was to present the gospel. And I know that room, a couple hundreds of people were there, had Christians there. But also, I, I could imagine many non-believers were invited by their Christian friends to sit and, and kind of in this somewhat of a Christian event. And this man got up there, and basically said this. He gave his testimony and said this. We all give our testimony to people, but then he gave his testimony in this way. It was when I was younger. I believed that getting to heaven was kind of like on a curve, right? For those of us who are in college or maybe high school, some of your teachers use a curve. You know what? I'm not the greatest guy in the world, but I'm certainly not the worst. Certainly God will accept me into heaven. That was his mentality. Perhaps that's your mentality today as you're visiting here. And he said, well, perhaps 70% is good enough, 80% is good enough. And then somebody explained it to him one day. It needs to be 100% to get into heaven. That means you've done nothing wrong. You never even thought something wrong. And my friend who was presenting 
realize, man, I, I'm not 100%. And that's bad news because he, he go, went on to explain those people will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those people will not enter heaven, but will face judgment forever. But he didn't stop there, of course. We're talking about the gospel, the good news. And he goes on to say, Jesus Christ, who is fully God, who created everything, the righteous one, took on human skin, lived that 100% life, and willingly took on our 0% score on the cross and was treated like a sinner. And he would go on to say, if you would believe in this Savior named Jesus Christ, the God-man, that he died and took on the punishment that you and I deserve for our zero credit score and rose to life, you will be credited with his perfect score. This is what he will go on to say. I think it made a lot of sense. So friends, right now, if you are not in Christ, the gates of heaven are wide open right now. You could be handed the keys to unlock this treasure chest of God's mercy right now. And this key is simply, how do you receive it? By believing, committing to Christ as your Lord and Savior. Committing to follow Him. Com- believing that His sacrifice was, makes you like that diamond. Perfect. Sinless. Forgiven in God's eyes. However, the Bible says this, the gate to enter into heaven is narrow because the wide gate or the broad gate leads to destruction. That's judgment. You do not go into heaven believing anything else but Christ. But the gate is narrow. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's very narrow. That's very narrow. But the Bible goes on to say the narrow gate leads to life. Church family, you know this. what this is about. Christians, we've escaped judgment, divine judgment, through the gospel message of Jesus Christ, through Christ. And if you're not in Christ, please, I plead with you, give your life to Christ. Trust your life to Christ. I came to seek and save the lost, Jesus Christ said. I did not come for those who are what? I came for the sick. Even if your score is 0%. Jesus Christ can forgive you and will forgive you if you trust in him as your Lord and Savior. Escape eternal judgment and enter into the gates of heaven. I have an illustration from the Bible for those who understand the the judgment, divine judgment that we escape, how that leads to true worship. We are talking about true worship after all. In Genesis Noah and his family members. God tells Noah to build a huge ark so that animals who come in and then his family and anyone else who wants to come in and believe Noah's preaching would be able to go into the ark. Well, no one believed them but his own family. So Noah gets in there with his family. There's a flood that takes place, 40 days and 40 nights. Global flood where God drowns the entire planet because of the world was so sinful and so depraved. Was it worse than now? Perhaps. We might be getting closer to that time. And they spent over a year on this boat, on this ark, floating around until the waters finally uh, receded. 
And they finally got off the ark after over a year. And Noah sees the devastation, the judgment that took place. I mean, the whole world was flooded. Think about that. What are you going to see when the whole world is flooded for a year? What are you going to see? What you're going to see is judgment. You're going to see bodies lying everywhere. You're going to see dead animals lying everywhere. You're going to see men and women, young and old, lying around everywhere. And as Noah stepped off the ark, he realized the the vastness, the totalness of this divine judgment. And he realized he and his family were spared by grace, by mercy of God. And what was his response? Well, let's look at Genesis 8, 20 and 21. When he got off the ark, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offering on the altar. He worships God in response to realizing that he escaped divine judgment. In verse 21, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. The Lord was pleased. The Lord was pleased. John Calvin writes, the great reformer writes, men will never worship God with a sincere heart. Remember, it's about the heart, true worship. Or be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal. Until, until when, John, Calvin? Until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. See, church family, you may be wondering, why is pastor talking so much about judgment? Why is he bringing up the flood? Because we need to understand that judgment is coming for non-believers. And it's going to be much worse than the flood. There's going to be a, a universal judgment where God's starting over and sending all, every single non-believer to live in eternity apart from God and the goodness of God. That's described as hell in the Bible. That's divine judgment. You see, one must be in Christ to offer up true worship. A non-believer could do good things for God, perhaps, but to where the gratitude is overwhelming, where it comes from a heart of thank you, God, only comes from a believer. A non-believer is incapable of offering up this type of worship. A non-believer is not energized by the power of the Holy Spirit to give true worship. True worship is only offered up through a supernatural gratitude towards God. So what does true worship require? It requires that you experience the mercies of God. Amen? That's where it starts. That's where it starts. And so if you're sitting here right now, knowing you're not in Christ, receive the mercies of God for free. The Bible says you're saved by grace as a gift, as a gift, as a gift. Isn't that amazing? That's where it starts. This is where the treasures that we understand when we understood we have a big debt. Instead, now we get this treasure chest of God's mercy that generates a supernatural gratitude, a grateful heart unto the Lord. Amen. Let's move on to the second point. What is true worship? 
True worship requires, number one, the mercies of God, experiencing the mercies of God, the saving mercies of God. What is true worship? The work true worship requires, number two, the acceptance of God, acceptance of God. The Bible, in verse, uh, going back to Romans 12, 1b, the second portion, let me read, to present your bodies, God calls us to present your bodies, our bodies, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. What does this mean, pastor, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice? Our bodies represent the totality of who you are, your, our very lives, everything about us we are to uh, offer up to God as sacrifice. If you play sports, it's your sports. If you're into your academics, it's your academics. If you're a mom, it's your service to your family. All these things are for God. Whatever we do, even enjoying the food that we eat, we eat it unto as worship to the Lord. Everything that we do, the breath that we get to breathe. It's our entire lives, our abilities, our resources, our finances, our opportunities that we've been given providentially, our experiences that we've had in the past, our emotions, our thoughts, our desires are dedicated to God. That's what it means to offer ourselves, our bodies, as a living and holy sacrifice. In, in other words, you believe that Jesus owns you. To those of us who got that treasure chest and the mercies of God, part of that mercy is that we get to be part of his people, that he is the king seated on the throne. Come, let us behold him. That's what that means. This is a way of life, a normal, everyday way of life. Today, some of us may watch a game. I don't know. If you have time, you may watch a game. I get together with some people. And what you're going to see is uh, people, usually a man standing in front of a bunch of people or in a circle, and they're going to huddle up. They're going to huddle up. It's going to happen. I remember teaching our defense. Mike Linebacker, you stand in front of the defensive lineman, no tackle. You set the huddle. Uh, defensive backs are in the back, corners left and right, safeties in the middle, and the linebackers are off to the side. Everyone, get your eyes on the Mike Linebacker. He's going to tell you what we're running. He's going to tell you what the situation is. He's going to warn you of what could happen. That's what happens in the huddle. You receive instruction, encouragement, warning, exhortate. Let's go. We could do this. Fourth and one. The game is on. Let's go. Shoot your gun. Watch out for the eye backs. They're going to run the ball. Hey, if it's split back, alert the pass. We get to the line of scrimmage. Mike says, saw left, saw left. Ice the pirate. I mean, we're talking the whole time. And then the game starts. And then the ball snapped. And you know what we expect? From coaches and players that are in that huddle, do your job. Execute your job. Not somebody else's job. Do your job as best to your ability. See, corporate worship, when we come together in the Lord's, it's like a huddle. You get instruction. We get to sing to one another. We get to uh, be encouraged. We could even be warned. We get to pray for one another. It's an incredible time. It's an absolutely necessary time. The huddle is necessary. However... When we break from the Lord's Day corporately, we're called to live out our lives as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is part of being a Christian. But when we say ready, break, 
Go out to your areas that you live. Go out to your sports scenes. Go back to your schools and your colleges. Go back to your work site. Go back to your relatives. Go back to your Super Bowl parties. I mean, be a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God. See, the best way for me to explain living and holy sacrifice is kind of like a mathematical equation. Living plus holy sacrifice equals acceptable to God. Okay, and... and what helps is that as Paul uses this imagery of sacrifice, there's a lot of people in Rome and others that would have understood sacrifices. It's an Old Testament practice. We understand this. Those of us who study the Bible at length, we understand this. And the priests were called to offer animals as sacrifices, as part of their sacrifice. What the priest would do, he had his holy utensils. He would cut the jugular vein of the animal and bleed the animal to death. And he and other priests would throw the dead body onto the altar, which had fire. And it would burn up and, by God's grace, offer pleasing aroma to the Lord. Well, First Peter 2.5 says this, Every Christian is called to be a, called into the holy priesthood. And we're called to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. No longer do we offer dead animals. Amen. Christ is the ultimate sacrifice which atones for our sins or pays for our sins, atone. But we're called to offer our own bodies now. Just like Christ offered himself up as our high priest, we're called to offer our bodies. Could we be called to offer our lies to die, perhaps, but most likely not. But we're called to offer up a living sacrifice. That means we offer up willfully our lives to the Lord. No one's forcing us. No one's putting a, a knife to our neck so that we're lifeless. We get to have to make a conscious decision of the will to throw ourselves upon that altar. And guess what, church? You know this. That altar is hot. It's not comfortable. It's not natural to throw ourselves on that altar. This is where it becomes a living sacrifice, a conscious decision to deny our own desires, to deny our own plans, to deny our own glory, to deny our own knowledge and wisdom and how we want to do life. I'm going to trust God. And holy sacrifice, in, a, in essence, holy means set apart for special service. Special service, church, for God, for God. You're doing it for an audience of one. You're doing, you're sacrificing, you're giving up, you're serving. Romans later on, Romans 12 talks about your gifts. That could be a way of serving and offering up true worship to the Lord. But it's for God. It's not for man. It's not to please man. It's for God, first and foremost. And I have three applications of true worship. Three applications of true worship. What, what does this look like, Pastor, in my life? Well, everyone has unique roles and unique positions that God has drafted you into to serve his purposes. But Malachi 1.8 gives us our first point of application. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, right before Matthew 1.8, says this. Malachi 1.8 says this. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, see, Malachi is, is admonishing 
the priests. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. First point of application is giving God our best. We don't give God the blind and lame parts of our lives. We don't offer that up to him as, Lord, I hope you're pleased. Things that we don't care about. Things that we don't really treasure. It's convenient for us. That's lame and blind, guys. And look what Malachi says here. To the priests, the priests would offer up better things to the civil magistrate, the governors. The Persian governors who ruled over that land in that time, they're giving them their best. So Malachi says, how does that make sense? You're going to give the man your best, but not God your best? How many of us do that, the church family? Let's be honest here. How many of us turn up when people are watching? Uh-oh, i got to get this ready because this, this man of sisters is going to be there. i got to be ready. Uh-oh, i better be ready because uh, these people are watching or things are on live stream. i better look the part. Nothing wrong with pursuing excellence, church family. But does it start off with the audience of one first? Lord, this is for you. And I hope everyone else is blessed. But first and foremost, this is for you. That's true worship. That means we give full effort. That means that we give generously and sacrificially. Whatever we do, our studies, our sports, our monies, our work, our parenting, whatever we're called to do, it's to do it for the audience of one first and foremost. Amen? Doesn't that make sense? That makes sense. That makes sense. Number two, I'm going to go to 1 Samuel 15, 22. I give you these references because I want you to know that I'm mining this out of the scriptures. I'm mining these treasures out of the, the holy scriptures, not just my own mind. Number two, I'll give you the head of time. The point is to simply to obey God. True worship entails obeying God. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Samuel the prophet admonishes King Saul, the first king of Israel, because King Saul did not obey God's command to eradicate the Amalekites. Instead, he trusted in his own wisdom. He chose what's right in his own eyes and kept their spoils and kept some of the people, kept the king alive. So Samuel comes in and says this. Samuel said in 1 Samuel 15, 22, if you're taking notes, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Samuel said, you could offer up all these rituals, heartless rituals, but if you're not obeying the Lord, what difference does it make? It's like coming to the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, in an unworthy manner. You could take communion, and no one knows the better, but God knows, and you know, if you're taking it in an unworthy manner. Amen? And look at what he goes on to say. Behold, that means listen up, truly, truly, verily, verily. That's the Old Testament version of, of that. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience, friends, is what God is looking for. And to heed than the fat of rams. Bible says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, what does it say? Lean not on your own understandings, but trust in the Lord with all of your what? Heart. God is looking for some choice men and some choice women after his own heart 
who will do all my will. That's what the Bible says. Obedience to the Lord. Obedience to the Lord. Third century church father. Okay, I went back in time for this one. But this is a good one. Even back then, they're struggling over the same things that we do. Third century church father John Chrysostom says this, or writes this. And how is the body... It may be said to become a sacrifice, question mark. Well, he gives a couple examples. Let the eye look on no evil thing. What are you watching, church? Movies, television shows, magazines, internet sites. Women walking down the street. What are you looking at? It was a problem back then too, evidently. And it has become a sacrifice when you guard your eyes. How about, he talks about the tongue. Let thy tongue speak not fi- nothing filthy. What is your language like? When you have opportunities to gossip, do you join in those opportunities? Men, when, in the locker room or other places, when you hear crude jokes, are you entering into those jokes or are you just holding fast? So when you hold your tongue and it has become an offering, finally, let thine hand do no lawless deed and it has become a whole burnt offering. How you do your work, how you fill out your taxes, so forth and so on. All these things matter to our God. See, doing it God's way is what God wants. And finally, this might be one of the most appropriate ones it is for me. True worship entails or applied looks like remembering God's mercies. Remembering God's mercies. I'm going to turn to Psalm 51. Just write these References down so you can look at it later. Psalm 51, a psalm of David, or written about David. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. David had an affair with Bathsheba, famous affair, probably the most famous affair of all time. Not only that, he murdered uh, his her husband, Uriah, the Hittite. And there was a massive cover-up. You know, talk about a Me Too movement back then. I mean, it was happening back then too. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. David writes, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. Verse 17. David concludes rightly through the Spirit of God, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That's true worship when we are freely repenting to our God because we trust in his mercies. We trust in the power of the gospel. This is a, some of us, sometimes me, an everyday thing. This pleases the Lord. This is what he wants remembering God's mercies, looking into that treasure chest over and over, like delighting, not not just throwing that treasure chest in the closet to collect dust someplace, but it's right in the middle of your house, of your heart, and you're looking at it constantly, reviewing it, reviewing it, looking at every single facet, putting it up to the light and seeing how the light refracts through all the facets, learning more about the mercies of God. This is worship to the Lord. Finally, church family, last final point, perhaps the most important point. 
What is true worship? Number one, the work, true worship requires the mercies of God. True worship requires the acceptance of God. And finally, true worship requires the mind of God. Straight out of Romans 12, verse 2, right out of the text. Romans 12, verse 2 says this, And do not be conformed to this world or age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Last week we spent the whole sermon talking about mindset and how important it is, how we think. How we think shapes our hearts, our minds. Conform to this world means like do not be molded after this age. Not necessarily people in the sense, but the world system, the ideologies, the value system, the priorities of this world. Do not let those mold our minds and how we think. That's what Paul is saying. Do not be conformed to this world. It's called secularism. What is secularism? It's like the thought that there is no God. Our finest universities, parents, you send your children to the finest universities, college students, guard your hearts. The main teaching is a world, an existence without God. This is what we hear from the highest levels of education, from media. There is no God. Therefore, live for this world. Live for now. Live your best life now. That's what we're being taught. And in, in essence, this is Satan's plan. Second Corinthians 10.5 says that Satan sets up fortresses of lies. Lies which are built up with speculations, lofty thoughts, raised up against the knowledge of God. Every idea... Every value, every ideal is gearing people's minds to have a belief that there is no God or minimally that God is small. Small God. There may be God, but small God. You could craft them into your own image. Use your own reasoning. Take in human wisdom, shape and mold God into your own image. Don't look at the Bible. That's Satan's plan, game plan. But the Bible says be transformed. Metamorpho, that's where we get the word metamorphosis. To re remodel, to be changed. It's like a caterpillar that turns into a butterfly, right? A caterpillar was born to become a butterfly. It has the internal information to turn into a butterfly. So in other words, Paul is telling Christians to allow your inner realities, let those treasures that you've been given to shape how you live and talk and think, your attitude. It should manifest in your character, the fruit of the Spirit, God calls it. And how does this transformation happen? It happens for a caterpillar by going into a cocoon, but for how about for Christians? This is by what? The renewing of your mind. Renewing our minds. There it is again. Our minds. Our minds. Our minds. Christianity is a rational religion. Christianity is a religion of truth. Christianity is a religion of the Bible. Okay? We have truth. Not by our own personal experiences. Not by our own logic or our reasoning. Not by human wisdom. Not even having some kind of a mystical experience. But through the truth. The Holy Spirit takes God's words, energizes our minds, and shapes our minds and our hearts. Your word I have treasured in my what? Heart. So that I may not sin against you. 
Jesus prays, sanctify them in the what? Truth. Your word is truth. So it's about having a renewed mind which allows us to think rightly about God. Remember, Satan wants us to believe no God or small God. No, no, a renewed mind thinks rightly about God. Kent Hughes, pastor and author, writes, in order to think rightly about God, first of all, we need to know the word of God because the word of God is the ultimate revelation of the data about God. We also need to think and reflect upon the truths we receive. Meditate. We need to meditate on these things. Worship is not only knowing the facts about God, but thinking about the data and lifting it back up to him. We must appropriate the truth about God in our lives so it permeates our spirits and flows back up to him. When this happens, we are fulfilling what God is seeking. People who worship him in spirit from our hearts and in truth. This is what God is looking for. As I study this wor- these, these, these words, be transformed in, in renewing of your minds by the renewing of your minds, the butterfly is a one-time change, right? But th- these, ver- these verbs are in the present tense. What that means, this is an ongoing thing for Christians. This is not like, all right, I've arrived, that's it, as we learned last week. We've never arrived. It's a journey. It's a process. And Satan's game plan is to basically have you treasure this world more than God. And 2 Corinthians 4, 4, one of my favorite verses says, because it's so clear, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Satan wants to blind our eyes so that we have a low view of God. And Christians, if you have a low view of God, you'll have a high view of the world. You'll treasure this world. You'll treasure Satan's kingdom, which is going to burn up someday. But if you have a grand view, view of God, holy, 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 before the throne of God, the whole earth is filled with your glory. You have a low view of the world or this age. I don't live for today. I'm not home yet. High view of God leads to true worship. Starts with our minds here. I'm going to conclude here, church family, and uh, I'm going to finish off with one last illustration. I'm not going to be talking about the grandeur of the Grand Canyon. I'm not going to talk about the majestic mountains. I'm not going to be describing some moving concert where I went to where someone sang so amazingly and left me in awe. I'm not going to be talking about some intense sports moment during a big sporting event. I'm not going to even talk about the awesome feeling of seeing your children being born. That that is an awesome experience. But all these fall short in describing the awesomeness of God. No metaphor, no illustrations do God any proper justice. We're going to go to God's word. Okay, and, and Sister Ivory Moore read Isaiah 6. So if you're able, let's turn to Isaiah 6. This is a signature text that gives us a glimpse into the throne room of God. This is it. This is it. Isaiah 6. Thank you, Irene, for reading Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, 1-3. We're just going to quickly 
point out three things. And really, it's the three points that we preached on. It's all here in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted. Our God is sitting on the throne. He's sovereign, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. His presence is everywhere, dominates heaven. Seraphim, the angelic being, stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to one another, holy, holy, holy. We sang that earlier. We're going to sing it soon again. Is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The worship is so intense in heaven that the foundations, verse 4, of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. See, the first five, four verses, church family, talks about having a renewed mind or renewed view of God. Isaiah saw all this like, whoa, I'd never in my wildest dream pictured you, God, to be this amazing, this awesome. Isaiah had a renewed mind of God as he was able to glimpse into heaven. And then verse 5. Look at his response. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. I didn't score 100%. Isaiah might have been 90%. He was that type of guy, but he knew even at that. I'm going to receive judgment. I don't fit here. Why, Isaiah, at the end of verse 5, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Have you seen the king, the Lord of hosts, church? He knows his condition. And then verse 6 and 7, Isaiah experiences the mercies of God. That's point one from our sermon. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. So hot that not even this amazing, powerful, angelic being could handle with his hand with tongues. So holy. And then what does he do? He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, there it is. Behold. That's the climax. Behold. This has touched your lips. And your iniquity or your sin is taken away from you. Your sin is forgiven. Isaiah experienced the mercies of God. He realized he, he escaped divine judgment. Woe is me. Forgiven. Diamond. Justified. Innocent. Just if he's never sinned. Just if he's lived Jesus' perfect life. Justified. Forgiven. And in verse 8, this is the acceptance of God in true worship. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? There's a little Trinitarian language there, us. This is what God wants, not what Isaiah wants. Naturally, spontaneously, in, resp in experiencing God's greatness, in experiencing God's mercy, look what happens. And then I said, I don't think he had to think about this. Here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. See, this is the 
perhaps a type of view that we're going to experience someday. Every single Christian who has died, from Paul to the early church fathers, to perhaps family and friends who have passed on recently, they are all staring into the eyes of Christ, the one sitting on the throne right now. And you know what, church family? If this sermon is complicated in that moment, it's all going to make sense now. They're thinking it all makes sense now. What was I thinking? They have completely renewed minds. And they're probably wondering, why did I hold so tightly to so many things, so many trinkets of this world? Why do I even care? And perhaps they may, there may be even some thoughts of, I wish I offered more of my life to my awesome God. What was I thinking? So, church family, what is true worship? Maybe this could help. Maybe you can write this thought down or memorize it. It's not long. To sum up this whole sermon, what is true worship? The most natural response to who God is. The most natural response to who God is. That's true worship. When we see God high and lifted up, when we see God sitting on the throne, when we see God holy and holy and holy, when we see the great mercies of God, how else would we respond but in true worship? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so merciful, so gracious. Thank you for being lofty and exalted. You are holy, perfectly holy, Lord. Lord, we believe that the whole earth is full of your glory. Thank you for the free offer of the gospel. Thank you for allowing us to experience your grace and mercy. Lord, you deserve true worship. You alone deserve true worship. Help us to fear you. Your word says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Help us to know you more. Help us to revere you more. Help us to take you more seriously. Help us to know you more. And Lord, by your grace, help us to offer our entire lives to you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.